Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Lost Lantern. And with me to talk about it are Nora Ganley-Roper and Adam Polanski. Nora, Adam, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. Absolutely. So uh, just a little background. We kind of met by accident or by uh, providence, as it were, uh, over at Travel Bar, frequent topic of mention on this podcast. (laughs) Um, and uh, certainly somewhere I'd like to point people. Um, but I didn't know it at first that you were both, you know, in the whiskey industry, um, both before Lost Lantern and now with Lost Lantern. Uh, so let's, uh, usually we would start with a distillery as the origin story, but instead let's talk about your origin stories. Yeah, I think you spotted us for industry folks within about five minutes, which was fun. We, <laughs> we had, it was actually our first time going to Travel Bar, but we'll uh, get more into that later. But um, yeah, we both, uh, before we started Lost Lantern, which is an American independent bottler, we both came from the whiskey industry in different ways. I was a senior whiskey specialist for a whiskey advocate magazine, and I was reviewing whiskeys from around the world, but mostly focusing on American whiskeys from some of the newer distilleries around the country. Yeah, and I, my my industry experience is I was sales manager at Astor Wines and Spirits, so got a deep dive into all things whiskey while I worked there. I came in as, an, uh, as a wine person and then left as a whiskey person and a wine person. I still love to drink wine, but um, Astor was a great kind of throw you off the deep end, learn everything about whiskey, and have to be able to talk about it at length um, with all of the people that come in and buy whiskey. So that's that's where I learned about whiskey. And then since then, I worked, I also worked in finance and operations for startups. So I'm the business side of Lost Lantern, but Adam goes out and finds all the great whiskey for us. And for people who, who aren't from New York or maybe don't know, um, Aster is kind of one of the flagship liquor and wine stores in the city probably one of the biggest in the country i would imagine yeah it has one of the most comprehensive whiskey collections in the country so great place great place to train your palate that's for sure oh yeah yeah as we were uh, working at these places we both fell in love with with scotch independent bottlers and that long and rich tradition of of been around for almost 200 years of these companies that were selecting casks from scotch distilleries didn't own distilleries of their own but were highlighting really unique whiskeys and uh, both from single distilleries and through making blends and we both wondered why this had never happened in the united states before and especially with this new blossoming of distilleries from all around the united states outside of the traditional consolidation in kentucky and tennessee and indiana it seemed like the time was right to start an independent bottler for American whiskey, focusing on these new distilleries that are making whiskey in unique ways in places where whiskey had never been made before or not in a really long time. So that's really where Lost Lantern came from. But also very much speaking to that Scottish tradition with full transparency um, on where all the whiskey comes from. And part of the story is about the great distilleries that we get a chance to work with. I wanna come back to that, uh, focusing on uh, places that are kind of underrepresented in the industry as well. Um, but to, to speak first to the, the independent bottling tradition, you know, as you said, Scotland has this rich history. Um, a couple of other countries have kind of a minor history in comparison, but it's really the Scotch uh, tradition. Um, before 
Lost Lantern, and um, I know there are a couple of other independent bottles kind of playing around in the U- in the U.S. space. But before they came, you know, what what was the independent bottling scene like in America? And if there wasn't one, why was that? I think there there have always been companies that don't make their own whiskey and source it from somewhere else. But to us, there are, there are many different ways to do that. And only one of those ways is being an independent bottler. And I really think before the last few years, there wasn't any wide scale independent bottling in the U.S. Um, and even were, if there were IBs that were based in the U.S., they were primarily focused on scotch and not on American whiskey. Like Single Cast Nation, which is wonderful. And they, they do primarily scotch and have, they definitely do some American whiskey now or really like the way they do it and have a similar approach to they do. But um, they started out by focusing on scotch. And I think it, it never really arose in the US because the industry has traditionally been consolidated in a few states and most of the big distilleries are owned by big companies and they make amazing whiskey, but they didn't have this need to sell off barrels to independent bottlers to get their name out there or anything like that. They had their own ways to do that. Um, but as new distilleries started opening up, there, there was more need for it. Yeah, and in some ways, the need for an independent bottler is a little bit different in the U.S. than in Scotland, where in Scotland, it's often the way to access distilleries or barrels that are getting put into blends that you wouldn't get your hands on otherwise. Um, whereas in the U.S., a lot of it is really doing the legwork to find the cool distilleries that are doing things across the country, but often focused very regionally. So having someone go out and taste from distilleries that no one's heard of and just and and kick the tires on what they're doing and lift up the distilleries that are doing really great things that it would be almost impossible to find if you weren't on a random road trip across the country. And I think that's what we were really excited to do because coming out of New York City and in our jobs at Whiskey Advocate and Astor Wines and Spirits, we still couldn't taste everything. We still didn't even know it was out there. So the independent bottling process for us is is in many ways curation, but also providing exploration for whiskey drinkers. I'm curious, just going back to the Scottish tradition in particular, because uh, it's a question, I've had a couple of importers on, I had um, Josh from SCM. Yeah. Um, Impex is a wonderful sponsor of the show. So I had that, Sam on from them as well. Uh, but you, you know, you brought up the point that in, in Scotland, it was originally so you could really try these whiskeys from places you wouldn't try, uh, say, what we would now know as a single malt or a single distillery. Um, and it's also a tradition that's gone on for 200 years. Yes. Uh, so I, I don't think I've ever asked this, but uh, for that tradition, do we know anything about kind of the demand for how that or how that tradition started? to begin with and and no. yeah. it started the same way that most of what eventually became the big blended scotch brands started because they actually a lot of them originally basically were independent bottlers because in the early days people didn't really buy scotch by the bottle a store would buy it by the barrel in some ways kind of like they do now but then that was the, the only way to get it they would just have a barrel in their store and you fill up from there um, all across Scotland, because it's like the early to mid 1800s. There weren't, weren't the um, glass bottles didn't become more prominent until the late 19th century. And over time, some places got really good at finding unique barrels and getting their hands on things. And people were excited by their by their picks, and some of these evolved into um, what are now Scotch independent bothers like A.D. Rattray and Cadenhead, which I think are the oldest. 
and others evolved into Johnny Walker and Doers. Uh, so taking a slightly different approach, eventually acquiring the distilleries outright. Um, I think I got most of the question in there, but got carried away in the history a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a resident that's history good. buff. So. <laughs> no, that's good. We, we can go as deep, as nerdy, as, as historical as we want. This is a free reign podcast. So perfectly fine. Um, as you mentioned, those 80 Rattray, Cadenhead, some of the oldest, single cast nation, one of the newest, um, and, and any number of them in between. So both from your experience at, you know, Nora, you at Aster and Adam, you at Whiskey Advocate, were there, were there certain independent bottles that you looked to as these are the ones that we really enjoy the most or their selection process the most, uh, or that inspired you in a certain way? So I think we always go back to Douglas Lang, um, both because they do a really amazing job with blends as well as single cast picks, because a, a lot of the other IVs are, we think are very strong on one of those lanes or the other lane. And Douglas Lang to me is the one that does the best job across the board between picks um, as well as their blends. And so for us, as we were designing Lost Lantern, we feel very strongly that bringing the art of the blend that is so prominent in Scotland to the U.S. is something that we want to do because the range of flavors here is just crazy. And a lot of people that haven't tasted things combined in the way that we'll be able to do in our blends. But we also thought that single casts were really important in being able to give people access to things that they wouldn't find otherwise. And we, we really like that the the Douglas Lang um, blends aren't just, it's not just a blend of scotch that, that tastes great, which, which they are, but they all have a purpose, which in their case is to, to showcase different regions of Scotland. So they have one for each of the official regions of which I think Big Pete, which is the Isle of London Malt was the first, um, and the Galdrins, which is their Campbelltown uh, by the Malt was the most recent. Um, and the only one that I don't think I've had. Um, <laughs> But we really like that it's saying like, hey, this is a place that has a distinctive regional character and that's in a country the size of Scotland. And we see a lot of opportunity for that in the United States because there's just so much more climactic and, and regional variation here. Gotcha. Um, when, so now you have your inspiration, you have the uh, tradition to build off of and also just your personal experiences to build off of. Uh, what was the startup process like for you? So before we really said, let's do this, we spent a couple of years checking to make sure that legally we could do this and that we would be able to make enough money to keep doing what we wanted to do doing this because we felt really strongly that this would only, what we wanted to do would only work if we could put the distillery's names on the bottle. And we wanted to make sure that we could actually do that. Um, so it took us a couple of years, but then also we realized that at the end of it, it seemed like it all worked, but we still didn't know if anyone's gonna actually sell us whiskey. A lot of these distilleries have never had anyone come and ask them to buy whiskey um, or sell whiskey. And so what we ended up realizing is we had to go to the distilleries, tell our story, talk to them about what we were gonna do. And initially we thought pit, start the pitching process to get them to eventually sell us whiskey. So we actually spent, eight months on the road in a little Prius, driving around the country, talking to distilleries. And the what felt like miraculous thing to us at the time is most distilleries said, yeah, we're in, we will buy, we'll sell you mature whiskey. Where we thought 
it would take a long time for people to say yes to us. And we probably would buy new make all of a sudden we were able to do this much faster um, and had a lot of buy-in from all of the distilleries we talked to. So it really did feel miraculous at the time, but it's allowed us to hit the ground running pretty quickly. Did you find in, uh, in talking to these, for especially the initial distilleries, uh, you ran to, well, actually, no, let me rephrase the question. So do you, it seems like they were very excited kind of off the bat to have someone asking for their whiskey, asking about their whiskey and wanting to um, distribute it to a larger audience. For, for the distilleries that you were talking to, did you find that um, their kind of barriers were more about how many people they could reach or in terms of actual distribution or just getting their name out there to begin with? I think it can be a bit of both. What, what we find now is a lot of smaller or medium-sized distilleries wisely decide only to distribute in their home state or if they're in some place like New England where the states are pretty small in a couple of states um, so that they can focus on that market. But then they could be making amazing whiskey and everyone in Washington state knows about it. But then people in New York have never heard of it or don't really know about it. And that's when we as an independent bottler, even if we're just doing a couple of single casks, can get it out to the right the right audience and help people find that name. And that, that's true with one of the distillers we worked with in our in our first blend uh, Copperworks Distilling in Washington, which was um, will always hold a special place in my heart as the the first distillery that we reached out to on our road trip, where I had never met anyone from the distillery before. A lot of the places that we talked to early on were people that I had worked with in some capacity as a journalist. And I'm like, at least they'll give me the courtesy of a meeting. We'll see where it goes from there. But when I emailed the Copperworks people, I had never met them. I had never even tried their whiskey, but I had heard that it was really good. And I was like, hey, can I, I'm starting an independent bottler. We're starting an independent bottler. Can we come and try your stuff and talk about it? And they were so excited because they they were brewers, but they also were very familiar with, with Scotch whiskey and, and, and that tradition. And they had wanted there to be an independent bottler for some time. So they were like, oh, finally, someone is going to do this. This is great. Yeah. And just out of curiosity with it being Washington State, um, this could be a completely off the, uh, you know, out in left field thought that's coming to my head, but uh, single malt is a little more popular up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, you know, I'm just thinking if, is there a connection between them wanting them being more receptive to independent bottling because of that, or is that just kind of coming out of left field? We find that single malt producers generally know exactly what we're talking about because they understand the tradition in Scotland because they're often inspired by Scotland as well. So they, they know about independent bottling. Whereas, um, not, like not all bourbon and rye producers, but a lot of them have never heard of the, the Scottish tradition. So it takes a little bit more education about just even what we're trying to do. But we find that they generally get excited as well once they meet us and hear about what we're up to, but they won't necessarily get an email from us and understand immediately what we're trying to accomplish through Lost Lantern. Yeah, because it's it's really it's really new for Bourbon and Rye because yeah. no one in the US was really doing it before in this way. They maybe were buying whiskey in bulk and using it for their own brand, but not with this this full transparency where like what we want to do, we don't want anyone to ever think that we made any of our whiskey. We want them to know that we didn't and to know who did and then to know why we're excited about that place. Who distilled so it. Yeah. 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 
So, I mean, that does a perfect uh, transition to the first product to talk about, which is the vatted malt. Yes. Um, and so you're very transparent in that the vatted malt is uh, at its core, it uses Santa Fe spirits as the, as the core of the flavor profile. Uh, and uh, Colin at Santa Fe is, I think I actually talked to him because I talked mm. to you guys at Travel Bar nice. yeah. and then it circled back around. Um, and in tasting both Santa Fe Spirit straight and then also the vatted malt, it was it was really fascinating because I, I love their single malt, I love all their products, but to see it uh, brought in with other distillers as well was a completely new profile. So what... How did that come about as your as the first blend? Yeah, so the vatted malt we actually made collaboratively with the distilleries. Um, it's it's a blend of twelve barrels from six distilleries, and it's actually two casks from each. So it's it's interesting oh. where it really is like all of those distilleries coming together in a collaborative way, also from a whiskey perspective. Um, but do you want to talk about how this project actually came together? Well, it was it was born from our road trip because we kept visiting single malt distilleries and talking about what we're doing and they were like oh that that sounds super cool i've always wanted to play around with blending other people's single malt they're blending their malt all the time but don't get much chance to play around with people's liquid from other places yeah. and after we heard this for maybe the third time we were like well, we could put that together we can get everyone to come and join us and i mean tap into everyone's blending expertise and bring some really unique casks together. And, and yeah. we did that. We invited six distilleries and got together in a room in, uh, in Colorado in a distillery. And Pre-pandemic, it's pre worth noting. Yeah. <laughs> um, with tons and tons of barrel samples um, and, and put it together. And it was, uh, it was interesting because there's, there's a long tradition in Scotland of including peated whiskey in a blend, obviously, but there is no, there is no mesquite smoked malt in Scotland. Uh, and it's relatively new in the United States too. So we actually did some tests in our, our home lab before we invited Colin and Santa Fe Spirits to be part of the group because we, no one had ever blended with mesquite uh, single malt before. So we wanted to make sure that it reacted well if there was also peated single malt right. in the blend. And what we, we discovered that if you have equal portions of peat smoked malt and mesquite smoked malt, they like weirdly cancel each other out and it doesn't taste that smoky and they just kind of like bang their heads together and fall away yeah um whereas <laughs> if they're the proportions are different then you can get a little bit of both of the flavors so it has yeah. uh, two mesquite smoked casks in the blend do you want to list the distilleries um, and one peat smoked uh cask from balcones distillery yeah um, just in general yeah. in the blend yeah um and the the six distilleries in the blend are copperworks from washington which i mentioned um westward in oregon Santa Fe Spirits in New Mexico, Balcones in Texas, Virginia Distillery Company in Virginia, and Triple Eight on Nantucket in yeah. Massachusetts. I'll add one thing. One of the important things, we actually came out of that blending session with a blend that tasted very much like scotch and one that had a lot more new oak in it. And, this, and we actually chose the one that had more new oak in it. Um, this is roughly, it's six of the 12 barrels are new American oak barrels because we felt like that felt American. That Because there are many people making single malt in the US that, that use new oak. And so to say, hey, this is our perspective on the landscape of American single malt right now. It would, it would have felt weird to say it tastes exactly like scotch because that's not how it tastes. And the idea for us in this is both a snapshot of single malt and also 
potentially an entryway for people that have been drinking bourbon and rye and either don't really know what American single malt is or didn't like one that they had, that the idea is that this is a great gateway to the flavor profile. And it's a great gateway to these six distilleries who are some of our very favorite American single malt producers. And I, my next statement, I, it's not condescending at all. I really don't mean it that way, but it's, it was really smart. I feel like to, to include the mesquite in there is, I mean, as people who have tried whiskeys from around the world, you know, peat is usually that one thing that kind of divides people yeah. for a long time. It's usually one of the biggest barriers to, to entry. Um, it was certainly mine for, for scotch. You know, I used to be Johnny Walker black was about as, as peaty as I could take it. Mm-hmm. Um, I still can't get into Lefroy, no offense to them, but, um, <laughs> but I love a Highland Park, a Kalila, things like that. Um, but especially for an American palate, we're not used to smoked whiskeys or, you know, there's peat all over the country, but very, very few people were using it. Uh, maybe had a few like Kings County doing a peated bourbon. Um, but it was almost unheard of a decade, decade and a half ago to have a a smoked or a peated American whiskey. Um, so I hear what you're saying in terms of having the proportions in the blend of the, the peated and the mesquite smoked. Um, but how else do you think you, um, how else did you shape the blends to be attractive to an American palate that might not be used to any smoke, let alone mesquite and peat? I think to your point, we didn't want it to be a smoke bomb. We wanted a little bit because part of this is like, we want people to taste it, but not find it overwhelming. We want to try to find something that allows it to be an entryway into, we think mesquite smoked single malt is one of the most interesting styles of American whiskey that's emerged in the last five to 10 years. And so we thought it was really important to include Colin and and Santa Fe spirits in the blend because of what it means for American single malt. But it was, we really didn't want a smoke bomb because yes, to your point, if we're trying to introduce people to the style in a new way, then you don't want to immediately turn them off from something that might've scared them off in the past. And uh, to, to the point too, I mean, mesquite is something that's really familiar to a lot of Americans and without even realizing it, just because there's such a huge tradition of barbecue here and smoking, mm-hmm. and, you know, um, I know in New York city, not a huge barbecue place, unfortunately, <laughs> I wish it was more, but um, especially in the Southwest or elsewhere, you get that smoky element in food, mm-hmm. not in the in the whiskey and mesquite is something that really crosses that boundary. So again, not being condescending at all. I think that was the, the, <laughs> yeah. the really smart pick to, to act as a bridge. Um, Thank you. And that's, it's fun to hear because I feel like if we talk to hardcore Scotch drinkers and tell them there's this new mesquite smoke single malt being made in, in New Mexico and Arizona, they just kind of look at us with, with blank eyes and they're like, what, what is that? Why would I want that? Yeah. But then if you talk about it to people who are really into food or into barbecue, then it's a totally different reaction. Yeah. But I will also say we used to live in New York and we now live in Vermont and we desperately miss the wonderful barbecue of New York City. <laughs> it's all relative. <laughs> it's fair. <laughs> there's, there's one barbecue place Here, it's and, pretty it's, good. and it's fine. Yeah. 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 There's always, there's one of everything in Vermont. So, but yeah. <laughs> that 
look, that's fair. We can, <laughs> I might have to drive to Brooklyn, but I can get it. But yeah, it's, it's, oh, there's just certain things you think of New York. I mean, you guys live here. You think of New York as having whatever kind of food you want, whatever thing, but I don't know. It's a side tangent. The thing I miss most about working in the office is halal carts in every corner. Mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah fair. Uh, you know, it's, it, I'd, I'd much rather work from home. I'm good with that, but I do miss that. Um, anyway, back to the whiskey. So, um, the other thing I was thinking about with, with, uh, mesquite smoke in particular and, and as part of the malt was, um, again, going back to, to Scotland, there are these different peat and smoke profiles and that alone is a whole series of episodes and, uh, you know, education about different regions and, um, and not everything is medicinal and all that. So that alone is, is a huge subject to broach. Were there, it, taking that to the American comparison, were there, um, were there other profiles that you considered before settling on mesquite as the profile to, to go with? We had over the years, I guess, especially I had reviewing a lot of whiskeys, taste a lot of other wood smoked whiskeys from around the country. I, um, I think the most common other one is, is applewood smoked whiskeys. And I've seen some mm. peach wood smoked whiskeys and cherry wood smoked whiskeys. And some of them are good, some of them are not as good, but I found none of them to be particularly distinctive. It didn't feel like they had something to, something to say or contribute in the way that mesquite does, which is a very distinctive and familiar flavor. So, mm. None of the other woods have have spoken to us yet, and we haven't done any single cast about the ones we've, we've looked at a few, um, and hopefully eventually we'll find something. But mesquite has really emerged very quickly as a style that, even in the Southwest, in just a couple of years of aging, of whiskeys that are really unique and we think show really really well. So that was a pretty unnatural fit yeah. for that. That being said, when we invited the distillers, we let them bring. We gave them some some notes. Call, like Colin was gonna bring some mesquite smoke, but we gave we gave them free reign relatively widely from a flavor flavor profile um, to bring whatever interesting things they wanted to bring, so that they we could we could play together. But it really like it ended up being only mesquite and a very few number of peat casks coming to the party. Um, yeah. yeah. The the other style that we wanted that we really wanted in a blend, um, which is not. Uh, does not involve smoking, is the um, the really heavily brewer influenced mm -hmm. uh, single malts of the Pacific Northwest, which both Copperworks and, and Westwood represent that. Both both distilleries were started by people who have been brewers for a very very long time, and obviously whiskey is ultimately made from made from beer. So people who have really mastered that process and um, from the craft beer movement, we think make really unique and interesting whiskeys that are quite different from scotch, just as mesquite smoke single malt is, but in a very different way. Uh, I, I don't believe I've tried, maybe, I don't think I've tried Copperworks and I think about it, but I do love Westward. And uh, yeah, one of their defining points is that their distiller's beer is potable and enjoyably <laughs> potable. <laughs> yeah. uh, and whereas uh, that's not usually the case. Um, it's not even usually desired, frankly. Most most distilleries, especially the large ones, don't really seem to care about that aspect. But um, they said you can just throw some hops in there and you'd have a good beer in a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, 
so uh, just the the last thing on the on the vatted malt, which I really did enjoy. It was uh, you know for me it was the first kind of American blend that was very uniquely American blend of single malts. Um, with the were there any other considerations for the American palate that you had to make? And the one that I'm thinking of, and perhaps is leading, is that bourbon in particular is a sweeter spirit. Um, rye has its own kind of spicier thing. And, and wheat, of course, is also going to be a softer, more vanilla forward thing. So these are the things that maybe American whiskey drinkers would have been more familiar with. Um, so are there any other ways that we might have missed that you were targeting the American palate or trying to reach the American palate? I think not really. It was, it was mostly the oak. We felt like that was a good gateway, having some, some new oak, which would bring in some of those bourbon flavors. So when you think about bourbon, it's so dominated by oak with the vanilla kind of caramel um, that we felt that people that are coming in from the American side by and large drink bourbon. They may also drink other things, but they'll generally drink a good amount of bourbon. And so bringing that new oak will, will bring them in. So we, we, we wanted to make sure that we found a balance though, between overly kind of catering to that palate, we wanted to still provide interest for people who are Scotch drinkers. So we, so that we focused on the oak, um, for the American palate. And then we also, we also slow proofed, um, the whiskey in general, which I think wasn't targeting any particular palette, but we found that initially, I mean, these 12 casks and we have them on full barrel details on our website. If anyone's curious, they're very different and we had a hard time getting them to integrate quickly. So by slow proofing them, which is just adding water to bring it down to the proof slowly, we found that it integrated the flavors more over time than if we had just slapped them together and put them into, into a bottle. So while that wasn't specifically targeting the American palate, I think some it really made a creamier palate, which also speaks to more American style whiskey in the end. Sure. And I uh... When I was speaking to Colin, he introduced the word saponification into yeah. my whiskey vocabulary for his uh, extraordinarily slow proofing process. So um, you can go listen if you're listening to this one. You can go listen to that episode for more information <laughs> on that. Um, but fantastic! I mean, again, I really love the American Vatimal. I had edition number one. It's at 105 proof. Um, there are about 3,000 bottles in that batch. Um, what edition are you up to now? Still one. Still one. Still one. Yeah. We we actually originally had plans to make edition number two even before we released the first one. We had it scheduled, and some of the people had already sent whiskeys for uh, making it on April first, twenty twenty. And around March fifteenth, twenty twenty, a couple things changed, and we had to cancel <laughs> that. Yeah. Uh, because we really wanted to do another in-person blending session. Like American Vatimal will probably always be done collaboratively other we'll do other blends that are are not like that but we want to get everyone in a room together and for the last two years that has not been safe so um sometime down the road there will be an addition number two and we want to play around with it we want it to be a slightly different mix of distilleries every time slightly different style like we said this first one was a balance of new and used oak but we may do one that's more refill cooperage driven or more smoke driven um, just to really explore where American single malt is evolving to right. Sure. And I mean, certainly even, even though you're on edition number one, you guys have been far from 
uh, quiet with the whiskeys that you guys have been putting out. I mean, it's been pretty still rapid fire even through the pandemic, which has been uh, impressive to look at in hindsight and also see what you guys are putting out. Seems like on a, you know, every other week you got a new barrel or two out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is... We So the, all the other things that we're putting out quickly are single cast. So they go much faster right. than 3000 bottles because we're still very limited. We, we actually work with partners that can ship to 40 States, but we are still limited in our reach right now. We're, 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 talking to the uber whiskey nerds um still in in what we're doing especially with the single cast and i, I have to say thankfully we're not actually releasing something every other week we could we come out with <laughs> with our single cast quarterly in with several at the same time our summer collection had had seven whiskeys in it um mm -hmm. i got stressed just hearing thinking about doing one every other week oh my God. <laughs> one day maybe i mean yeah. <laughs> you never know but yeah it's we do we have put out a lot of whiskey during the yeah. pandemic but it's been really, really fun. Yeah. And, and I think what I'm probably seeing more than anything else is that while you put it out in, in a quarterly basis, uh, you also run a really good marketing and social media uh, presence for them. So it's constantly in my feed of, you know, this bottle is coming out or this batch is coming, or sorry, this cask is coming out. Um, so it's always kind of front of mind and it, it's exciting to see what, what the spring set is going to be what the yeah. summer is going to be um so all of it it's, it's exciting to see so yeah i appreciate other, that yeah <laughs> yeah uh so the other three uh samples that you shared with me uh very generously were from cedar ridge fray ranch or is it fry ranch fray it's, it right. is fry okay yeah. got a friend who spells his name the same way and it's pronounced fry so it's really confusing uh <laughs> And then um, Spirit Works Distillery. So, uh, you know, I thought we'd go just one by one through them. Uh, the starting with the uh, the Frey Ranch. Okay. Yeah. So um, this was a uh, you know, it's Frey Ranch it's from Nevada. This is the summer 2022 single cask number six. Uh, it's a Nevada three grain straight bourbon whiskey, 118.2 proof with 196 bottles uh, coming out of barrel. Um, and yeah, this for this is for Frey Ranch for all three of them. This is my first time tasting all three of these distilleries. Yes, I love it. <laughs> yeah, so which was doubly exciting. I'm like, I want to try these new things, and um, whether I like them or not, I always want to try them. These three I happen to like, but I'm still whether <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. For for this one, uh, I kind of separated them. You know, I put the the vatted malt separately from the other three because just to separate what they really were. Um, but of the three that you sent, while I enjoyed all three, the Frey Ranch took the top score for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I got these really dark, fruity notes, like a like if you barrel finish an old fashioned or a Boulevardier uh, had. And this was not, to my knowledge, this was not finished. Nope. In any way, it was just straight, straight out of the cask. Um, and it's important because the other uh, two were finished. So to have that kind of that unfinished one be my top score was was notable fun um yeah it was so um let's just dive into you know how how that relationship came about and then this particular barrel yeah so i think fray ranch is one of those distillers that i'm i'm most excited about in the country and I, they only released their first whiskeys during the pandemic uh also so they're relatively new in having 
whiskey on the market and they're only really available in Nevada and parts of California, um, which is fun for us because then we can give it out to a wider audience. But they are one of, or maybe even the only true estate distillery in the United States where they grow um, all of their grain themselves on site. Uh, they even malt their barley on site. Um, it's the distillery is attached to uh, a family farm, uh, and the Frey family has been farming in that part of Nevada since the 1850s, before Nevada was a state. So the distillery is a lot newer than that, but they have very deep roots in the area. Um, it's also fun for me as someone who grew up in the Northeast and thinks of Nevada as being Las Vegas and the desert to have discovered that that is only one part of what Nevada is. Right. Um, Frey Ranch is in the um, is about an hour and an hour and a half from Reno. It's in the Lake Tahoe watershed, so it's it's still quite dry, but it's in a little farming pocket of Nevada where you can actually grow things. Um, there's a lot of groundwater um, and is quite quite bountiful for the desert. Um, and this is what well, when we talk about our bourbon single cast in particular, what we always say is that. It, they don't taste like Kentucky bourbon and they shouldn't because they're not from Kentucky, it's from Nevada. And that is a pretty stark difference in climate. So I think for us, it really illustrates what we want to do with that with our bourbon, that bourbon can be many different flavor profiles and styles depending where it's from. And we think they do a really good job. Yeah. And this is actually the second of a pair of barrels that we bought from them. Um, and the interesting thing is their normal bourbon is a four grain. So we actually did a previous cask was four grain bourbon, which was our introductory bourbon from them. We generally, when working with the distillery, will release first an introductory cask. So for people that haven't tried anything from that distillery to get a sense of what they're all about. And then we do something that is, it's actually funny, is off profile for what they normally do. And actually I was just realizing all three of the casts that we sent you are those non-standard profiles from these distilleries where they're not exactly like what, what you would get. So this three grain wall, it, to me, it is still very distinctly Frey Ranch. It's less earthy than their four grain. They're pretty well known now for this very earthy style of, of bourbon. And you get a little bit of that, but I agree with you that it's a lot more fruit driven. Um, it's actually my favorite of the pair, but it's it's a whiskey that was really exciting partially because a lot of people haven't tasted free ranch and also because they've only put out a few three grain um single casks yeah. so far so it was a special kind of view into both the future of what they're doing and also just something different from what they normally do as as we alluded to before we only work with distilleries that we we visited in person and that is uh that was definitely one of the hardest ones to get to because yeah. we visited them uh in the winter um, and it was actually before they had released any of their whiskey. I had, um, we went there because I had tried their gin and really liked it. And I had tried their vodka and really liked it. I don't really drink vodka very much, but I can still taste a good spirit when, when I see one. I was like, this has potential. And I hear that they are laying down thousands of barrels and never did any small barrels. Just started with full size right away. At five didn't, years? Didn't release anything until it was five years old. Yeah. And a lot of newer distilleries don't have the ability to do that or the or the patience to do that. So we we figured we were going to get out there before they had released anything and had a three hour meeting with them and then had to flee a snowstorm when they left. <laughs> um, but yeah. once their their whiskey finally came out, we we circled back with them and we're like, okay, now's the time. Um, but we're actually really excited because we're going to go visit them again um a couple weeks in, in yeah. august and it'll be our first visit since they've actually had anything on the market so it'll be fun to go back and see how much things have changed 
That's awesome. I mean, uh, all three of these distilleries I, I want to have on for their own episodes just to talk about their their profiles and such. Um, so I'm going to leave the question of why they do a four and a three grain for that. To them, yeah. Yes, I'll, I'll, yeah <laughs> just in, in due deference, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, but that being said, the, the point remains that it's, you know, this is from, as you said, northern, uh, northern Nevada in the Lake Tahoe watershed. Cedar Ridge from Iowa, Spirit Works from California. Yeah. Uh, these are all regions to your earlier point that are underrepresented yeah. um, and that can put out whether it's a single malt, a rye, because one's a single malt, one's a bourbon, one is a rye of these three, yeah. uh, that can have these general styles of American whiskey, but, be, but still be very localized and regional in their profiles. Uh, and it, it brings to mind, I, I didn't have a chance to look at whether you had worked with these particular distilleries, but I'm just thinking of ones in um, Ohio that I've talked to, uh, you know, Watersheds, a previous guest yesterday was Middle West um, in Columbus, talking like Dancing Goat in Michigan or Stolen Wolf in, in Pennsylvania, these distilleries that are very regional and putting out a, a distinctly regional style. I think I'm just throwing the word regional in there as many times as I possibly can. <laughs> Uh, but it's, hmm, what was I going to ask on that? So, um, without going into, you know, Frey Ranch's decision to go with, you know, three grain versus four grain, um, what about them, particularly as it pertains to their geography or their, their profile, uh, really appeal to you? You know, was it that fruitiness? Was it something else? Or... Yeah, I think it's it's definitely the, the the flavor profile and the earthiness, but also the fact that they are choosing to lean into that. They're not trying to make a whiskey that tastes like it's in Kentucky. Like their their warehouses are are open air, not climate controlled, because we as we know, because we tasted them in December freezing. and we were freezing. Yeah, um, we we don't ever select on site, but when we were just tasting barrels for fun, there it was very very cold. Um, and that's usually what we look for. We want places that embrace where they are and how it's different and both from maturation conditions and from where they source their grain and for Frey, they just grow it all. But most of the places that we work with source at least some of their grain locally and sometimes all of it. Um, we have worked with Watershed. Um, we um, did a single cask five grain bourbon with them um, that has some spelt in it, which is a grain that is I think it's been around for thousands of years, but really only grown in Ohio and the parts of the Midwest. So it was a fun local mod there. Yeah. Um, and we're still yeah. learning what it means to be a Northern Nevada bourbon. Like sometimes, most of the time, until you have multiple distilleries in that place, you don't know if it's that distillery's choice or if it's the regional um, quality to the whiskey. So a state like Texas, we're starting to see what a Texas whiskey actually means. Um, but I think for Frey Ranch, and, and actually all of these three, because they're in places where they're not necessarily in a defined style yet, we're looking for some kind of thing that is exciting. It has to taste good, but also something that feels like they're really leaning into local things. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, 
Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallaki, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more. There's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. Absolutely. And it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned Watershed with that. I also have a single bar- barrel of theirs from the Five Green, um, which they've since moved away from right. to now yeah. do the Four Green. They've dropped the spelt, I think, because it was just too expensive to keep in there. I that, um, yeah. So I'd love to side-by-side those to see what those single barrels are like, because their other single barrels more recently have been outstanding. Um, but we, so Free Ranch, I definitely, I'm going to go to them and be like, Hey, I've tried at least one of your products. Uh, because <laughs> see if I can try two or three others just on the, on the, from friends or whatever. Um, but definitely talk about them because they're, it was shockingly different and I love that. Yeah. And that's what we like because, I mean, you are obviously someone who's really, really into whiskey, but you haven't gotten a chance to try it yet. And even if you saw it on the shelf, you might not have grabbed it because you haven't heard that much about it before. And we feel like that's a lot of the value that we can add is talking to knowledgeable whiskey connoisseurs and saying, like, every craft distillery is out there saying that their whiskey is great. But we are the ones who are doing the the vetting and finding the ones that we think are are really doing things that are unique and special. Right. And assuming that everyone learns to trust our palates um, over time, that we can then help guide people to these great distilleries. Sure. And that brings that brings around two things uh, that have been mentioned that one more recently and one earlier in the conversation that I want to highlight. The first one being that you don't select on site, mm-hmm. uh, which I am wholly, wholly in agreement with because <laughs> yeah. Everything tastes better in a Rick house. Yes, it does. <laughs> um, or, or in the adjacent taste room, everything tastes better on site. Yep. But to really get the objective view, you got to take it home. You got to try it in a, in a neutral environment. Um, have, has anyone given you pushback on that? No, no. not really. The, I think the hardest thing is that we also ask for a lot of samples. If we're picking two to four casks at a time, we want as many as we can possibly get. Every once in a while, someone will be like, we don't want to send you 12 things. Um, We we find ways to make it work, but it's much better when people send us a a big variety because then we can really explore. Sometimes people are like, oh no, this is going to be more work for me, understandably. (laughs) Like we're showing up and like, hey, mail us stuff. But I think when it comes down to it, people respect the fact that we take it really seriously, that we want to be in the same environment. We want to taste things multiple times because we all know if you eat weird things, like if you have something that's spicy or that's cheesy or whatever, it can, it can impact your palate. And so for us, putting it through the ringer is a way for us to really select the right things that then make them look good. So I think when people kind of get over the like, oh no, <laughs> you're not just going to pick it. Um, it actually makes them more excited about what we're doing. Definitely. So, uh, you know, that was the first thing I, I wanted to definitely mention as, as incredibly important. It can be, as you said, it can be something you ate. It could also be like how you're feeling that day, what the yep. weather is like, is yep. it going to like right now it's, 
supposed to storm later today. So is that going to throw off my palate when I'm tasting things? Got to taste them multiple times to, to be sure. Looking for consistency. Um, yeah. Exactly. And uh, the second part that I want to roll back to was uh, back at how we met at, um, mm -hmm. at Travel War because you know, I became, I'm not really sure how I got introduced to Mike initially, to be honest, but um, quickly got on really well. And I've been there many, many times since, uh, including doing an interview with him. And he kind of prides himself on knowing like he's got 400 bottles on the shelves, um, which I wish I could say was a, an astronomical number, but I know my own count. So, uh, <laughs> you know, he's got 400 things on the shelves, but if you ask him about any one of them, he can tell you about the bottle. Yeah. You know, they're chosen by him because he likes them and he'll stand by them. And if it's on his shelf, he stands behind it. Uh, so I saw in you being there in the, the serendipity of us meeting there, a lot of similarities and parallels. Mm -hmm. So you really want to know what you're putting out. You're not just getting a bunch of samples and trying them and saying, this is the best one. That's the end of the process, it seems, for you both. Yeah. yeah. So um, I know that was kind of a, a talking at you kind of question, but <laughs> um, that could go back to, uh, so what ended you up at Travel Bar in that particular night? Well, it's funny because we actually, this is, this I find genuinely embarrassing that I never went to Travel Bar when we lived in New York. And, no, and yeah. We only lived in New York in 2018. So and I was like a 15 minute, I lived like a 15 minute walk away from Travel yeah. Bar, but um, oof, yeah. But we, right before we went there, we had uh, gotten drinks with uh, with a journalist that I know, uh, Aaron Goldfarb. And he asked mm -hmm. us what we were doing after that. And we said we had no plans. And he was like, well, you should go to Travel Bar. And we, so we did. And yeah. so it turns out that like literally everyone I know in New York in whiskey goes there all the time. And <laughs> I don't, I don't know how we hadn't, missed it. Maybe hadn't blown up yet in 2018. Yeah. Or, but um, but we were both blown away by the whole experience there. It's like exactly the kind of whiskey yeah. bar that we like, including that it's not super like it's not fancy leather couches and like crystal and all kinds of fancy stuff. Right. It's just like a place you can go and drink whiskey and talk about it and have a good time. And drink really cool, interesting whiskey. I mean, we go into so, we we generally, when we're traveling, we'll go into a bar and look at their back wall and we make assumptions very quickly about the person who's selecting whiskey and what they're going for. But walking into travel bar, it's like not serious about ambiance, but it's a very serious whiskey collection. And also clearly- I disagree about the ambiance. I think it's very serious about it. It's just super, super cool. Yeah, it's super chill. <laughs> fine, you're right. But still the point is like, you can, you can see his touch with what he was picking and get a sense of how serious he is about it. That like his is one of the most thorough independent bottler collection, especially from a like bottle per capita, like the number of IV bottles relative to everything else is very high. And the one, the IVs that he is buying bottles from it told it told us a lot about his perspective on whiskey and so we were immediately like yes <laughs> we are in um so we were very glad because we were waffling on whether we were going to go because we were tired we were there for a business trip and we're very glad that we made it there <laughs> it was also so. like i bet we're going to get spotted for industry people within 10 minutes and that was correct yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I, I took a little longer to, to spot you. I mainly figured it out just because of the conversations you happen to be right next to me. So it was not eavesdropping by any means, but it was just, you know, you're right next to it at, at a relatively quiet bar you can hear. So the questions you were asking were not ones that someone right off the street is going to ask. You know, you were asking those deeper questions and yeah, it, it's, <laughs> I think, yeah, 2018, he hadn't won the award from Buffalo Trace yet or the, the local award yet. So it hadn't quite blown up. Um, but I felt the same when I when I learned about travel bar. I mean, I, my usual haunts when I lived closer to, I'm still in Queens, but when I lived closer to Manhattan, I'd go to uh, the Whiskey Ward mm-hmm. all the time. Yep. You can try, you know, anything on the thing, anything on the board, one ounce pour, whatever you want. Uh, in a flight, I tried, I don't know how many whiskeys, easily about 150 different things there over the years. Yeah. And that's the best thing about it. Uh, one of the other fancier ones, of course, uh, being uh, was the uh, Brandy Library, yeah. um, Fine and Rare also. And these are all places with great selections, of course. And um, Fine and Rare in particular, I think at least some of the staff there can really compare to what Mike's trying to do in just being able to speak to what's on the bar, but um, I still think he just excels at it uh, beyond it. But to your, this, this brings up another thing too. And this, this is how these interviews go. It just kind of pops up (laughs) organically. I love it. Um, Yeah. And uh, it goes to knowing and trusting who's picking the whiskey. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've tried to, to push this idea in, in reviews and maybe one or two interviews before, but um, especially when we had this rush of group picks of everything from Knob Creek to Good Times to whatever brand out there you want to pick. Every group was getting a pick. Every store was getting a pick of something. Um, it was really easy to get uh, overwhelmed by it and just go after the shiniest sticker or the highest proof or something like that. But when I started to pull back a little bit and realize, okay, these I really enjoy the picks from this group. This group puts out some interesting things, but I don't, I don't enjoy them. Right. Like they're cool, but not good. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, whereas this one is a little more subtle, but the palettes are really good. And um, you know, one of this, another bar that I don't get to as much as I'd like to actually, but I really trust the guy's palette here is Boulevard in Long Island city. Also blue streak wine and spirits. Um, Rob, who runs both of those, um, I started to realize that he was one of those pallets that I just like, I knew if he picked a, a bottle or a barrel, I should say, if he picked a barrel and it was a brand or a company that I liked, chances are I'm going to like this. Yeah. So I'll, I'll take the risk. I'll spend the money for that bottle rather than just throwing it around all the place. So in your case, you're doing the same kind of thing. You're saying, look, we're picking this whiskey. We're going to uh, really... I don't want to use use the word extreme because I don't think that's the right word, but lengthy length to figure out what the best things are. Um, so how, is there any way you can push that idea forward short of just having people try as many things as they can from you? And I think that that certainly is a part of it. And I mean, even for us, we're, we're determining what our, how style for picks looks like over time, which is especially hard when you're working with distillers from all over the country. But I think that 
it's it's partly our palettes, but that's only a part of it for, and especially for clubs, part of it is access too. It's what that distillery chooses to send you and the what your your options are. And mm-hmm. um, we, because of the places that we work with and the way we work with them tend to get um, some really special options available to us because we're usually working directly with the, the founders or the owners. Yeah. And a lot of times clubs can't do that. Sometimes yeah. they can't. And like the next two casks that we we haven't talked about yet, both of those we never would have known to ask for, but we always go to a distillery and we say, what are you excited about? Um, What what kind of off the wall thing do you have that you think that we'll get excited about? And those are not things, usually clubs are picking something that's in the standard palette of a distillery. You might get a little bit of variation, but we're often looking for something somewhat similar to that but we're always also looking for something that shows a totally different perspective on a distillery. And it's not something that clubs would necessarily get access to. But I think also we, we go back to the idea of Scotch independent bottlers where some people want to drink signatory because that's a palette that fits their palette. Someone wants to drink Douglas Lane. Someone wants to drink Gordon and McPhail and you learn whose palette fits yours. So we think there will be many more American independent bottlers and there'll be more of that. So I think it's also people deciding whether or not they agree with us, whether they find that their palate syncs with ours, because there's certainly going to be some people that just don't like the same whiskey that we do. So I think for us, it's putting enough whiskey out. We also have a wide range of whiskeys. So we like to think that even within a collection, even if you don't like some of the more off the beaten path things like the, the Spearworks thing that we sent you, we have some things that are more classic. And so even within that, people will learn to trust us. But I do think trust is only built by people buying things and consistently liking them. Um, we'll consistently <laughs> keep putting out a whole range of flavors, but if people don't taste them and appreciate them, then we'll never get to that point where people will trust that we know what we're doing. We have accolades, like we have backgrounds that are in this business, but it all comes down to flavor. Sure. And, you know, that's a perfect way to go into, uh, into the next one. I know we're, I'm being mindful of time, but there's just so much to talk about here. You're fine. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so the next one is, is the Spirit Works Distilleries. So this is the California straight rye whiskey finished in a slow gin cask, uh, spring 2022 single cask number four, 113 proof with 207 bottles. Um, so yeah, again, first time trying spirit works um i'm not sure i even heard of them Frey ranch and cedar ridge i had heard of i hadn't heard of spirit works before mm-hmm. and slow gin i had also never had before <laughs> so that was new i had i had like i'd always heard of like a slow gin fizz or yeah. you know it had been in the in the vocabulary but never actually tried it um so my so the question that came out of this one for me was when and you kind of alluded to it just now but when you go to a distillery, say it's going to Spirit Works, um, are you generally picking a barrel and then deciding what to do with it? Or has did was this barrel already being finished in slow gin casks when you chose it? You know what I mean? Yeah. This was it's mostly the former. This was already being finished when we when we got it because we asked them like, "What are you excited about that you're doing?" Because we wouldn't think of finishing a whiskey in a slow gin cask. No one like very few like, people even have slow gin in a cat like yeah. a cask that held slow gin right. to begin with. That's yeah. very unique to them. Yeah. Um, 
because we think that it, it's still, we like, even for unusual whiskeys like this, we want something that captures that, that distillery's spirit or essence or what, what drives them. And we think this Spirit Works makes this slow gin themselves. They, it's actually from one of the founders' old family recipes. He's, he's British and, uh, or English and grew up drinking slow gin. And then when, once he had a distillery, started making it. And then they're like, why don't we put some of our, our rye in it? So it's still very deeply connected with what they're doing. Um, we will eventually do our own finishes, but for right now, it's anything that you see that's finished or aged in a used cask, that is a distillery decision. And we pick the cask while it's already been finished. Yeah, for now. We'll do a little bit of both in the future. Yeah. Well, that precludes one of my questions at the end, so that's perfect, because I definitely <laughs> was going to ask about that. Yeah. Um, we should just throw in here, because uh, I had to look this up. What is slow gin? It's funny because I'm so used to explaining whiskey and talking about that, but I had the first time someone asked me that, I was like, I know exactly what slow gin is, but didn't know how to talk about it. But anyway, it's, do now. I do now. It's gin that's infused with uh, with slow berries, which is a kind of berry that is uh, is indigenous to the UK. It gives us this bright red color and also this bright red berry fruity note to it. Um, it's mostly used for cocktails like the slow gin fizz. And since you haven't had one, you should uh you should rectify that they're really good some of my favorite summer cocktails I and mean, i used to drink them and make them all the time in new york um with very very cheap slow gin that is much worse than what uh spirit works you can makes. get your hands on the reserve spirit works slow gin it's mm -hmm. awesome yeah so the but the the key point is that it has this like it tastes like a gin with a lot of red fruit or red berry flavor to it as well yeah. Uh, and we think that's what it adds to to this this whiskey as well. I'm, I'm really curious what you think about it because I think in some ways this is the most unusual whiskey that we've done so far and yeah. probably one of the two or three most polarizing. Yeah. Some people are obsessed with it and some people are like, it's not for them. Because it has you landed. gin. When have you ever yeah. had gin botanicals as, you know, as, notes, as sure. a note for whiskey? Cool. And that's for us, that's part of the joy of it. But yes. Sure. I mean, I'll be honest, I... Well, number one, I do enjoy gin. So that at least put me in an advantage from that perspective. But having never had slow gin before, I think that advantage probably wiped out. <laughs> um, for, for me, I had to taste it a couple of times. The first time the slow gin was uh, almost overpowering for me. It was, and I really think that was just because I had never had it before. Mm -hmm. so, so I, I kind of knew what I was looking for if I was looking for a rye. Uh, underneath it or parallel to it but having never had the slow gin my mind was just totally focused on the slow gin <laughs> i couldn't see anything else um in the two subsequent tastings that i did with it that lesson and it balanced out more for me where um you know the red berry started to the red berry was a wonderful sweet flavor on its own and then the juniper botanicals that are kind of in the background of it because because that red berry is so powerful uh, at least for for my palate, the juniper and the herbaceousness in the background kind of came around the back in a way and buttressed the rye mm -hmm. to that wasn't that spicy, but because it was buttressed by the herbaceousness and the juniper notes, it could then stand up to the red berry and it ended up balancing quite nicely. Um, but I can definitely see how that would be polarizing for for especially for someone who's not familiar with gin or slow gin or um it's not a 
let's say a botanical lover right. by nature. But we we think that's that's part of the fun, and we want to do things that that push the boundaries a little bit. Like it it really was not all that long ago when people were complaining that places like Angels Envy were finishing bourbon in wine casks, and they're like, "You're not allowed to do that. That's not bourbon." And the the flavor profile is not allowed, and that's now that's become pretty accepted and often sought after. And every finish at some point was new and weird and unusual, besides for Sherry, I guess. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm I'm really curious to see what ones become more common over time. Like I really don't like think it. slow probably not. will be just because <laughs> there aren't like yeah there yeah. aren't enough barrels. Yeah. yeah. The apple brandy though, apple brandy is a finish I really really like. We love apple brandy. Um, yeah. But but yeah, we think it's this is one of my favorite ones to pour for people because it has such an interesting reaction. A lot of times people are like, give me a little more of that. I need to try it again. <laughs> need to, to engage with it. But it's yeah. also worth noting, so this one's in our cream label, which usually signals, sometimes it signals that it's not part of single malt bourbon or rye categories. So like corn whiskey would be in cream. Walk through, but, walk through all of them. So I guess, but with the colors should tell you something about what whiskey you're about to drink. Single malt is brown bourbon is red, rye is green. And then we have cream, which usually means that if you just look at the style of whiskey, expect it not to taste like that. So with this, you can get rye, but that's not the leading thing. Um, we've had, our recent one was a single malt that we got from Balcones that spent its entire life in a tequila cask. That's not going to taste like what you think about going into to single malt. So generally that's, that will tell you something if it's in cream and this is most definitely in our cream label. Um, but we also, some of our favorite casks are in the cream label because they're so different and tell you, tell a different story than you would get anywhere else. So. Sure. And I agree with you, Adam. I, I love, uh, apple brandy finishes. I have arrived from, um, another, at the moment, uh, group slash store staves and grain um, around here. Uh, it was an MGP rye finished in local apple brandy. Mm. Mm. So it and it nice. actually went it went up in proof. So it's like over 120 proof after aging a little longer. So um, that was also right up my alley. I like high proof. What can I say? <laughs> um, th this also and this will go well into uh, into the Cedar Ridge as well. The Besides the independent bottling tradition being uh, relatively foreign to the American whiskey scene, the other thing, as you pointed out, was the finishing yeah. is pretty foreign to it. We're seeing it more now. I'm putting aside the the crazy ones that like Good Times is putting out or, or you know, weird things that they just dump in barrels and then put bourbon in afterwards. And like, that's, that doesn't count. Um, but, but certainly uh, like an apple brandy finish or... Something purposeful, methodical, thought out, not just done. So you could say you have a toasted coconut marshmallow finish on the label kind of thing. Um, and whereas in, in Scotland and other parts of the world, especially wine finishes, sherry finishes are very common. Yeah. And, and certainly they're almost expected in a certain way that they'll have a, a distillery will have an expression that is finished in some way like that. Um, which again, it goes really well into the Cedar Ridge, which is an Iowa single malt. Again, first whiskey from Iowa that I've tasted, let alone from Cedar Ridge. Yeah. 
finished in a sherry cask. Um, so it's from fall 2021, single cast number one, 115.3 proof uh, with 555 bottles, which given the number of bottles, I'm assuming that was a sherry butt that you guys got a hold of. Yep. Yep. So very, very large cast. <laughs> and there's uh, yes. actually still just a little bit of it left because it's so big, which is yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah. It's one of our favorite casts. Yeah. So it's fun do, to do still have some story of this one. So Cedar Ridge, um, we actually, they were on our shortlist when we started Lost Lantern um, because for us, Iowa grows so much corn. So we felt like it should be natural that there's great bourbon made there as well. The, the amazing thing is now Cedar Ridge is the top selling bourbon in Iowa. They actually outsell Jim Bean by 35% or something crazy like that. They're the first craft distillery that's done that in the country. So that's super exciting. That happened more recently, but we had tasted their, their bourbon, um, Astra sold it. it. It was one of the few places that we could get our hands on, but it was an 80 proof. So we tasted it, but it also, we said, okay, this is the underlying spirit is really good. It's way too weak for our audience. And we also are super excited about the idea of an Iowa bourbon because that's bourbon country. So we went there planning to buy bourbon. We did actually buy bourbon. Our first bourbon that we ever released from was from Cedar Ridge and it was great. They make a really kind of light, creamy style of bourbon. But Murphy Quint, who is the head distiller there, um, he tasted a bunch of barrels with us. And then we said, okay, show us some really cool things that you're working on that you let us taste. And he didn't really think about what might happen, but he let us taste this cask, which was his favorite barrel in the whole distillery. <laughs> and we tasted it, asked to take a sample home with us for our full tasting, and then eventually said, we want this cask. So he was not excited to sell it, but his dad, who is one of the, the founder and owner of Cedar Ridge, um, let us take it home. So and we didn't know this until we, later that it was his favorite. It felt pretty uh, bad. But it's been one of the great stories. Like they wrote a whole newsletter when this came out about it. And um it recently won um at San Francisco best in class for finished whiskey. So we feel like he's gotten the accolades that this cask is due. Uh, but it certainly it was never something I mean this kind of sherry bomb of a single malt if you would told us to guess what state it came from, I would not have ever been on our list. And for us, that's also the beauty of it because it's somewhat more classic of a style of whiskey than we normally do, but it comes from Iowa. So we were excited about that kind of juxtaposition of um, flavor while being still to us pretty noticeably from Iowa with a creamy mouthfeel. It still, it speaks more to the tradition of Scotland than a lot of our stuff does. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, my this was my runner-up for <laughs> favorite. Um, it was just so fudgy, and I know yeah. I emailed you. I emailed you about it because it was just so unique. Um, it was like chocolate brownie batter. I, I'm reading off my notes right now. It was like chocolate brownie batter, a dark dried cherry undertone. Um, it wasn't. It was not the, the kind of the bright fruit of the slow gin. It was really the dried, stewed down, um, almost syrupy kind of thing, and just swirled into fudge batter, and mm -hmm. so good. Um, 
probably I'd, I'd put it as a, um, it should be your last of the night because it's a pretty dense pour in the best way. Yeah. Uh, but I'd be happy to have two or three last pours <laughs> if it meant <laughs> having that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was, I can see why this was <laughs> Murphy's favorite, favorite cask um, for sure. And I just think it's, it's fun to, to pour, especially for people who are, who are really into scotch because this is not what you think of for American single malt. And I think that a lot of people for better or for worse, if someone said like, Hey, do you want to try this Iowa single malt? They might be a little skeptical at first, but we want to say like, Hey, like really great whiskey can be made in a lot of different places, including some that more traditional people don't necessarily expect. So we think that's, it's fun to pour this for people without time and where it's from before we reveal it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cedar Ridge makes it very both very good single malt and bourbon, but they also make a great malted yeah. rye. Yeah. We like, can you tell we're fans? <laughs> we really like what they do. And I feel like in some ways they're one of the for especially for coastal whiskey drinkers, they're one of the diamonds in the rough still. Like yeah. people don't know them in the way that we think that they should be known. And part of that is because they're really focused on the Midwest, which makes sense from the business model. I mean, they're number one in Iowa, but it sure. means that not that many people have gotten a chance to taste it outside of there. And especially at cast strength, our, our bourbon single cask from, from them was the first time that people had tasted a single cask at cast strength. So it it's a different perspective, certainly. Yeah. I think about it like, what if, what if Highland Park was only available on Orkney. That would be that would be ridiculous. Like you have to get it out much wider than that. Um, U.S. is a big country. There, these places can be very successful and only be in their home market. But I think that people like us can can do everyone else. Hopefully, help everyone else find these really interesting things that are not more widely available. And you had to mention Highland Park, which again is my it's my favorite Scotch <laughs> distillery. So, um, God help me if they were only on Orkney. Uh, they're how they're for me just quickly going back to this the smoke component but that's how i was able to get into peat and smoke mm -hmm. was the highland park understanding the heather smoke as opposed to the salinity in the isla uh, style instead um otherwise i i would not be <laughs> tasting what i'm tasting right now um so i know we are at about an hour 15 uh i don't want to keep you too too long uh so definitely these four, I should say, the three single barrels or single casks plus the American vatted malt would easily buy any of them. Uh, I'm going to see what's available and go from there. But uh, moving forward, and you alluded to this in talking about Cedar Ridge in Iowa and how these brands generally stay pretty localized unless they either get lucky or have a strategy from the beginning to distribute widely. Uh, right now, as you're looking at the landscape, what do you think is one or two of the, the regions most overlooked or simultaneously are up and coming as, as whiskey regions in America? Yeah. I mean, I think the Southwest is just starting to, we think it's the most, the most exciting region with the Mesquite Smoke Single Malt. And people are starting to hear about it. But we found, I think when we were, our, I guess in late 2020, we had 
a Santa Fe Spirit single cask. And then in early 2021, we had Whiskey Delbach. And a lot of the, even the, the journalists that we spoke to that have tasted hundreds of whiskeys had never tasted their whiskey. So I think it's it's an area where it's getting written about more, but people still aren't drinking it enough. So I'm, I, I think that's an area that like feels like a personal mission for us is to get people to taste it. Because I do think once you taste it, nine times out of 10, people are in hook, line, and sinker. So. Yeah, we, we did one, when we did our Whiskey Del Bach release, we did a number of interviews about it. And one journalist that we sent it to really fell in love with it and ended up doing like, a story about whiskey del Bach and ended up saying that that their their core releases were it was his favorite whiskey brand of the year and he had never had it before he discovered it through us and that's exactly what we want we want people to find these things um the other region that i would add is uh is the midwest yeah. uh, i think that there are a lot of especially uh bourbons and rides being made across the midwest that are really coming into their own they're getting to that sweet spot of being at least four to six years old um, not exactly in the Kentucky style, but um, really interesting things being made from Ohio and Indiana to Iowa and, and Wisconsin and probably a bunch of places that we haven't found yet. So a lot of them have a lower profile or are more locally available. Yeah. We're just patiently been waiting for it to get to a, a sweet spot. Uh, from what I've heard, there's almost 3000 distilleries in the U.S. right now. So, you know, that's a lot of road tripping and a lot of trying. So, yeah. you know, give yourself a little break on that one for <laughs> not getting everywhere it's um, more him these days yeah. he's doing more road trips than i am where he'll bring it back and we do final selection but he's yeah. doing a lot more sourcing stuff I was, solo. I was just in indiana this spring and since then three different people have recommended that i go to a different indiana's distillery that i had not made it to like, <laughs> it's never I to go back when i have to find a way to get back to indiana and it's not like the part of indiana that's near kentucky it's like way in the northern part of the state it's a great so problem to have there. though yeah, yeah. We're good whiskey. Yeah. We can't complain about that, but yeah. it is, it is a lot of travel for you. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, this will be the last very short tangent is just, I completely hear what you're saying. Most people, when I'm assuming Indiana, they usually think of MGP, of course, but yeah. there are more popping up, yeah. uh, especially in the black forest region. I'm a big fan of, you know, spirit of spirit of uh, words lick. failing me. Yeah. yeah French lick yeah. with what, you know, Alan's doing and uh, with his, whiskey witch which came out earlier this year so cool. you know he's yeah it's so cool it's i mean so you've tried it i i that was where, where i visited in indiana yeah. a few months ago and i got to try it yeah. in barrel which was very very fun um yeah we visited there and or i visited there and i visited yeah. starlight and we've done some casks from starlight already but i love them too yeah um, um yeah. i'm just i'm just curious with the whiskey which because i mean the bottle still came out at like 126.7 proof so it there i'm doubting there was much difference other than the fact that you were there which does make a difference but you were probably tasting the same very similar kind of thing just shot in the dark here what the hell would you put for tasting notes on that <laughs> sometimes i like to do evocative tasting notes that are not about the flavor and are about the story and how it makes you feel and that's what i would do for that one because I don't know what I would put for the tasting notes for it. And she hasn't Thank had you. it. I haven't had it. Yeah. Thank you. I'll, I'm happy to share some with you because if Alan won't, because or can't, because I, I loved it. It was so unique. But I just talked to him and I was like, dude, I, I there's no style that I can compare this to. It's <laughs> totally different flavor profiles. It's like the closest thing I could think of is if you finished a whiskey 
an Indiana single malt with a red absinthe or a non-colored absinthe, you know, clear absinthe, but with other things as well. And I'm like, I don't know how to describe this to somebody without having them taste it. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens with that. Um, okay. I think it's time to let you guys go. <laughs> really? Um, don't worry. We're, we're a long way. We're chatty. Yeah. No, look, I like it. I, these episodes, I always book for an hour and a half because I, I know things just pop up and those are the best conversations. And this has been a fantastic one. I know there's, you know, you'll definitely come back in the future, talk about the next batches you're coming out with. Happy to, to talk about them anytime. Um, and you're already saying you're in the future, you're going to also be adding in your own touches to the barrels, the own, your own finishes with some of them. The next editions of the vatted malt will be little this or that. So there's a lot to look forward to. Plans and, um, and some new projects with distilleries that are not single casks. Yeah, uh, we have a lot of stuff this fall coming out that, that is new so exciting stuff i'm really looking forward to it uh i'm definitely a convert to uh to the palette and love trying these things so um hang on with me just for a minute after we finish recording but in the meantime where can people find you and where can people buy your products yeah the lostlanternwhiskey.com is where you can find all the information about our releases it's also the best place to go to buy whiskey. We work with some retail partners that can ship to your door. If you head to our website and put in your state, it'll send you to the right partner for purchasing. And we're also on Instagram at Lost Lantern Whiskey and on Facebook at Lost Lantern Whiskey. Perfect. And you know I'll have uh, links to all those in the show notes uh, so people can follow. And as I said, it's you have a great social media profile and presence. So you're always at the top of my feed. <laughs> Yes. Uh, which is which is a good thing. It means yeah. you're succeeding. Um, so uh, once again, Nora, Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, really enjoy what you're doing. Can't wait to see what's coming next. Definitely go out and try Lost Lantern. Buy Lost Lantern whiskeys. Uh, even if you've never tried the distillery before, take a chance. I I'm happy. I'm happy to promote and say I haven't had a bad one yet. So um, thanks so much for coming on. And until next time. Cheers. Thanks for having us.